So the title is Understanding Distributors, How to Vet, Hire, and Motivate a Distributor Without Losing Your Damn Mind. Damn, why couldn't we do this four years ago? This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. Now that we have our own bourbon over at Pursuit Spirits, we're learning firsthand how distributors can make or break your brand. There's a huge learning curve to understanding the lingo and just being able to communicate on the same page. But this can be maddening, especially if you choose the wrong distributor that doesn't give you any attention and lets your brand go stale. So we invited Johnny Foster to come back on the show to give us insights on how to work best with the distributors. Johnny was a guest back on episode 227 when he's a part of Smooth Ambler, but now he's over at Ragged Branch and leads their sales and distribution. He gives the pros and cons of selecting large versus boutique distributors, how to spend smartly on incentives, and how to do targeted marketing funds. Ultimately though, Motivating partners comes down to building authentic relationships through regular visits, and even more importantly, communication. With that, enjoy this week's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Randall Buxbaum, who writes me on Twitter at Buzzbaum, B-U-Z-Z-B-A-U-M. Will a robust export market allow the bourbon boom to continue? Well, Randall, that is a loaded question that we have been asking ourselves for a while. Tariffs got in the way of European growth a little bit. But I know this, everybody's trying to develop China. Everyone's trying to figure out how to develop China. There are people trying to get sales forces in Poland, France, Spain, United Kingdom, They cannot meet the demand in Australia or Japan. Mexico is growing. Canada continues to grow if we can get whiskey over there without their taxes destroying it. South America has an interest in American whiskey. So all these export markets, some are a gamble and some are a home run. Like Mexico City, Mexico City is insane. Like they crave bourbon. In a country like Vietnam, if you would have asked me to name a country 10 years ago, that would be a growth market for a lot of people. I never would have guessed Vietnam, but Vietnam has got a lot of people's interest. And Singapore. There's so many places outside of the Middle East, which is dry for the most part, that have an interest in bourbon. But there is a slow growth in Europe. So the South America, the Asian markets, those seem to be really promising, but Europe is not catching on as much as we thought it would. In fact, there was an article not too long ago that came out in VinePair, and it's basically titled, if you want to look it up, in Europe, American whiskey is still waiting for its boom. And they connect it all to the tariffs that occurred, and there's rumors that tariffs are about to come back on. They're not rumors, they're actual political discussions. So I got to tell you, I just hate that bourbon and Tennessee whiskey or all American whiskey really are political fodder. You know, we're a part of the political targets for any time there's a trade dispute because it'll hurt us and you cannot make it anywhere else. And we have a lot of tax dollars tied to it. 
So I think when we can get past some of these trade issues, I think we'll start seeing more of a boom in Europe. But the growth markets are Asia and South America. I've been hit up by several companies trying to grow China. And in fact, my book, Barbara Curious, has been translated and is in the Chinese market right now. So I know they're really, 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 really dancing with bourbon. They're eating it up. They're also making their own whiskey out there. So looking forward to seeing what that's going to taste like. But South America as well and Mexico for sure. That's going to do it for this week's Above the Char. I kind of went on a little bit of a rant on that one, or not a rant, but just kind of mumbled, I feel like, because this is always in my head thinking about it. But I thought that was a great question. And if you want to hit me up on Twitter, feel free to do that. Just hit me up at Fred Minnick. I no longer have a blue check mark, but just like Randall Bucksbaum did, just send me your question. That's going to do it, folks. Be safe out there. And remember, vodka sucks. It's that time of the year where everybody started to make their vacation plans on visiting Kentucky, the mecca of bourbon. And if you are coming to Kentucky, you need to make sure you visit us at Pursuit Spirits in Louisville. We're right in the heart of Clifton, near Butchertown and Nulu, and only just a few miles away from downtown Louisville. But when you do come, you need to book your experience to go do our whole shebang. This is the one that's really the star of the show. You get a full-on tasting. You get to do your own personal barrel selection experience. And you get to grab a whiskey thief and fill your bottle directly from the barrel. We're doing something completely brand new that nobody else is doing here in bourbon country. Plus, you get a free sweet tasting glass at the end of it. I guarantee you, you're going to end up being one of the many people that's also leaving us a five-star review. So make sure you come and check us out. You can book your reservation by going to PursuitSpirits.com and clicking the Visit Us button. From Jim Beam to Maker's Mark, their brand and label are the only things more iconic than a bourbon's taste. And that's why we've partnered with Sticker Mountain, a company focused on helping you make a statement with your labels and stickers. Embracing cutting-edge embellishment technology allows them to add foil, raise texture, and more to make your product stand out all at competitive prices with market-leading turnaround and customer service that treats you like a business partner. And that's why right now you can get 10% off your order with coupon code STICKYBOURBON at StickerMountain.com. See the difference they can make for you and your business at StickerMountain.com using coupon code STICKYBOURBON. Have you tried to identify specific notes in bourbon when nosing and tasting, but just come up empty? Well, you can train your nose to find all those nuances with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. So you can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma made from chemicals. Head over to noseyourbourbon.com and enter the code BP10 for 10% off your order. Give 270 presents Whiskey Wednesdays Round 10, The Bourbon Vault. 24 amazing bourbons behind our 24 locker doors. For just $5 a ticket, you could score a bottle of Pappy Van Winkle, a six-bottle Weller Vertical, and even a bottle of Old Forester Birthday Bourbon. Plus, each week, five lucky winners move closer to the ultimate grand prize, the Buffalo Trace Antique Collection. For tickets, visit give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 0002703. Always find what you love at Total Wine & More. With so many great bottles to choose from at the lowest price, it's easy to find your favorite Cabernet or a new single-barrel bourbon to try with some help from one of their friendly guides. And with every bottle comes the confidence of knowing you just found something amazing. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, 
Find what you love and love what you find only at Total Wine & More. Curbside pickup and delivery available in most areas. Visit TotalWine.com to learn more. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly and be 21. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Hey everybody, it's Bourbon Pursuit, and we're back with another brand new episode, and we've got myself, Ryan, and Fred here today, so fellas, once again, hello. What's going on up in here? It's good. Hey, hey. It's good. So this is something that we're going to invite a, a guest that's hasn't been on in quite some time, but this is how I get ideas, by the way, is that I look at ADI conferences, American Craft Spirits, just anything that's in the distilling industry, if there's a good conference that looks like it's happening out there, and I look at the list. I look at what are people talking about, what's interesting, and I try to see how we can find those people to bring them on and turn those into topics for the podcast. And this is something that maybe selfishly, as Ryan and I have been building our own brand at Pursued Spirits, I looked at this title and I said, this is something that I feel we should probably talk about. And even better is that he's been a past guest on the show. So it was an easy way to kind of make all those worlds collide too. Yeah. Thank you, ADI, for giving us ideas. That's how we make it in this space. We let other people give us ideas and then we execute them. And, you know, coincidentally, this is how I met our guest was, I think, the first ADI conference that was taking place in Louisville. This was, God, I want to say 12 years ago, something like that. It's at the Brown Hotel. I'm using the bathroom. I'm coming out and there's like this guy like following me, like following me. I'm like, what the? Does this always happen when you leave the bathroom? You get people just following you out? It's odd, but like if it's a spirits-related thing, there will be someone who will stalk me and try to find me where I'm cornered or alone, and they'll come up to me and start talking to me. And then they put a whiskey in my hand. I'm like, oh, God, I got to taste this in front of them. Uh, and this guy did just that. They were like, yeah, we're from West Virginia. And, and I was like, oh, my God, thank God you're not a tool. You know, you're actually, I can actually have a conversation with you. What state would they have to be from to be a tool? <laughs> well, don't, it, don't you know, that when we get listeners everywhere, I'm <laughs> it's not to do with where they're from. It's more about what they're pitching. First of all, they were pitching a uh, whiskey that they were bottling from MGP, which I knew, you know, while well, at that time it was not sexy, I knew how good it was. And Smooth Ambler went on to be, they made my one of my list of best bourbons of the century so far with some of their barrel picks, you could not find a better MGP barrel pick from anywhere else than uh, Smooth Ambler. I mean, they, the elevation they have with their distiller, I, that little extra aging there, I just think made them so special. But I had one that was called Jawbreaker. I swear I would put that up against anything ever made out of that distillery. It was so good. Anyway, but anyway, so we became friends. I actually became a big fan of Smooth Ambler. And it was interesting to find out this John left Smooth Ambler to start what he's doing now because I always just called they were John Squared. So 
But I see in his group now, he's calling himself Johnny. Johnny just sounds more sales guy. You know, it's a little bit more like Isaac on the love boat. You know, I'm the fun guy. Johnny's the sales guy. Is this like your separation from your band? Like, you know, you were the foster formerly known as John. Now you're Johnny. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. Well, that all started at, at Smooth Ambler because the early days, the phone would ring and they'd say, hey, can I speak to John? And we got tired of saying, well, which one? And so I became Johnny and John stayed just John. And so that's how we could tell us apart, really. I was never Johnny before 2009, except to my sisters. Well, there you go. So you heard his voice. So today on the show, we're going to just go ahead and run with it. So Johnny Foster, he was a guest back on episode 227. He's also now working for Ragged Branch Distillery. So Johnny, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, fellas. It's really good to see you guys, even electronically. It's been way too long since we've actually broken some liquid bread together. I look forward to changing that. I agree. This fall. Yes, we need to do that. ASAP. Yeah. So I guess give us a little bit of background before we dive into today's topic. Give us some background about sort of what you've been doing since the last time we talked, what you're doing at Ragged Branch as well. Well, so Smooth Ambler sold to Pernod, as, as you guys all know, in 2017. And there was never really any long-term scenario where John and I stuck around forever. We weren't sure what it was going to look like, but it's really hard to stay on after you hand the keys more or less to somebody else. And there's nothing worse than somebody that stays at a party too long, right? <laughs> the only thing worse than somebody staying at a party too long is you not realizing that you're that person, right? So the guys at Ragged Branch, it's really an embarrassment of riches. You know, I started Smooth Ambler with one of my best friends, John Little, and Ragged Branch was started in 2014 by two guys from my hometown. One guy grew up five houses down from me in Waynesboro, Virginia. And I'd known about them all along. They, they came over and looked at our setup at Smooth Ambler when they were getting started. And I've kept in touch with them over the years. And as we developed whatever our new latest and greatest thing was, we'd sort of have conversations about what the guys at Ragged Branch were doing. Very different path for those guys. They didn't do vodka, gin, no sourced spirits, no clear spirits. They just kept their heads down and made bourbon and rye for a couple of years. But it was a great and natural place to go and you know to just sort of fold in with another family when I was ready to leave Smooth Ambler. So yeah, I've been with Ragged Branch for, I guess, two and a half years now. And so what's the the main role that you're, you're doing there? I'm a director of sales and marketing. I'm the sales guy, just like the old days at Smooth Ambler. Very much the same. They were in four markets when I jumped on. By end of October, we'll probably be in 26 or 27, which a little bit of that speaks to, to our topic today, right? It's just picking up all of those channels. But yeah, I'm basically doing... Everything that I used to do at Smooth Ambler in the old days, I'm now doing for Ragged Branch, which you know feels good to be steering your own ship again. What kind of case volume is that for those 25? We're expanding right now. Our total capacity in finished goods is about 20,000 cases, and we're selling a little over half that. So we've got some room to grow. We'll be distilling at the expansion facility probably by Christmas, if not before. But as we all know, that whiskey won't be ready for five years. Right. So we won't be won't be drinking that whiskey in 2028. So that extra those extra cases give us some room and some time to ramp up to where we can get into the expansion whiskey when it's good and brown and ready and all the things that we want it to be. Right on. So as we were kind of saying, the topic of today's conversation was something that I had done from trolling all the different conferences. And so this one 
caught my eye from the American Craft Spirits Association Conference and their convention schedule. And the topic of today's show and the one that he's given this presentation a few times now is it's called Understanding Distributors, How to Vet, Hire, and Motivate a Distributor Without Losing Your Damn Mind. And we can see for Brian and I, if you listen to Behind the Pursuit, yes, this is something that we kind of deal with on a day-to-day basis. But John, I, Johnny, I'll start saying it right. I'm going to open the floor to you. How do you typically begin this presentation and sort of set the stage to either gauge the audience and figure out like where they are in their journey or understanding what do they need to get out of this presentation as well? Well, let me back up a little bit. I had the idea for this for essentially two reasons, because the first distilling conference I ever went to had very little discussion about any kind of sales and marketing. And I mean, you can't necessarily teach sales 101, but they're fundamentals and they're building blocks you can discuss. And there's, you know, there's simple strategies. And there was none of that. Basically, all of the seminars were either how to pick your yeast, how to run your still, or how to sell your business to Diageo for $20 million. You know, <laughs> and I was like, Jesus Christ, the guys, there's something between those two things, right? <laughs> At least in most cases. There's a lot of work between the figuring out which yeast you want to use and how to position your company to be sold. And there was nothing. I felt like there was this, this big vacuum there. That was one thing. The other thing is that at the time, how to pick a distributor was taught by one of the largest distributors in the US. And that felt a little fox in the hen house to me for these guys to sit up there and tell all these brand new people, you know, the best way to pick a quality distributor. And it's like these guys, I'd already had enough experience with being a small brand inside of a very, very large distributor that can be a dicey proposition, depending on what your goals are. So for them to teach that class, I thought was just kind of funny. And so that's what kind of came up with the discussion. And it really is Some of it is directly addressing what the title is. But to your point, some of it is like, well, where are you in your thing? And what is your your goal? Is your goal to have a nice little healthy regional brand that's profitable and makes you feel good? Or, Or is the goal line to build this machine that you will sell to somebody intentionally in, you know, between five and seven years? And once you figure that out, you know, you're talking about a room full of 400 people, right? And everybody's kind of in a different spot. But these growing pains and these pitfalls that we all encounter trying to find and then partner with, and now there's contracts that you have to deal with. And John and I don't think we had any contracts, really, for the first couple of years. And now some of these people want you to sign your life away. All of those kinds of things, you know, feed into this idea of all the effort that you have to do to have a distributor partner, and then you haven't even sold anything yet. That's just identifying and trying to motivate the right people, the right partner. And then the selling really begins. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we've had this discussion, like who's more important, the distiller or the sales? And being on this side, at first I would answer that question. I said, of course it's the distilling and it's the product. You got to have the best product, then it will take care of itself. And what we've learned is that You can have the best product ever, but it doesn't matter if you don't have good marketing, sales, and distribution. And I think people don't realize that how important it is. This industry has romanticized distilling and crafting and all this stuff so much that it kind of loses sight of like what gets the product out on the market into consumers' hands. Yeah. I mean, ideally, right, in a perfect world, you want it to be this beautiful marriage of both, right? A really exceptional liquid paired with uh, nearly flawless effort to get it out there. But it is so hard to break through, and the deck is stacked against you 
in some regards. And that makes it additionally hard. There's so much money into the business. My first foray into distribution before Smooth Ambler, I worked for Cisco Foods for 12 years, almost 13 years. And there were allegiances and there were there were always promotions and incentives for a craft product or something like that. But if you made a box leave the building profitably, Cisco was happy. Nobody was going to pull you aside and say, hey, you're not selling enough French fries or you're not selling enough this or that. I mean, sure, those those spiffs and those things were out there, but nobody was. There were no mandates in the sense of of that. And so, one of the things that surprised me about our business is once you're inside the bigger distribution systems, there are mandates and there are things that are, as I said, the deck is stacked against you a little bit because you're just trying to build this little small brand and be a little different from the norm. But all the salmon are swimming upriver against you because every link in the chain is not going to miss their bonus if they can help it. And they're not going to make their bonus by selling another 10 cases of your stuff. They're going to go sell 150 cases of what's really driving that distributor boat. You're right. I mean, a thousand distillers would kick me in the nuts to hear me say this, but making good spirit is relatively easy compared to proliferating that spirit and selling it all over the place. Actually, just putting something Getting something good coming out of the still and out of the barrel is not insurmountable. Yeah. And I think you, I think you and like Penelope recently have proven that, you know, that that's the case. I always tell people, you know, Ragged Branch is not your problem. Smooth Ambler is not your problem. Old Granddad bonded for $29.99 is your problem. Wild Turkey 101 for 23 bucks. Yeah, we make stuff from scratch and we raise the grains ourselves and all of the local terroir, hands-on-ish things that you want. And I can justify our price point for that. But I saw a two-year-old whiskey the other day for $60. Then you have people like Fred Minnick doing best value bourbons under $25. I've done that in a long time. (laughs) I'm kidding. I mean, I understand this is a very trade-centric conversation, but... Amazon exists for a reason. Walmart swept the country, knocking out mom and pop candle stores for a reason. Consumers will always value a bang for buck, whether it's a sack of feed for your cattle or it's a bottle of bourbon. You know, they're going to want to get as much quality as they can for the least amount. And every decision is based on price. So I don't think it's necessarily fair to say that old granddad and wild turkey are the brand's problems. I think that's a unique way within the trade to look at it. The challenge is how can you bring value to a consumer and be competitive? And Stephen Thompson, he's in the Bourbon Hall of Fame. He was the president of Brown Foreman when they started Woodford Reserve. He told me, he's like, you can never price a bottle of bourbon based on what you need to make off of it. You need to price it based on who you want to be next to on the shelf. And that always stuck with me. So I guess kind of talk about where's that happy medium, John, because like consumers, man, we're here for them, not necessarily for the bank accounts, if you will, because there won't be a bank account if you can't make the consumer happy in terms of price. Yeah. Well, my point about the cheap bourbons is just that you can go get a really good bourbon for less than 25 bucks, you know. And if you're going to sell something that is way younger than those and maybe dubiously distilled or whatever, there better be something to, to back it up other than 
we're nice guys and we think we're cool and we'd like you to pay $60 for our bottle of bourbon. The happy medium, I guess, is what is success for your business? If you want to be a 100,000 case brand, then to Fred's point, yeah, you're probably not going to do that with not quickly anyway, with a 60 or $70 whiskey, you're going to have to provide some value. You're going to have to be under a certain price point. Thankfully, I have a friend who has a brand out of Patagonia and it's a beneficently weird spirit, you know, this infused spirit. And when he and I were talking about business, it's like, but the good news for me is I don't have to explain what bourbon and rye whiskey are to most people. The bad news is I have a million competitors, including not only the people that have been around for a long, long time, but you know, every time I teach that class, I'm talking to 300 potential competitors who are going to go out. You know, most of them make make or source some form of whiskey. But to answer your question, Fred, I think the happy medium is just connecting with the customer on whatever level that is. I mean, if you're going to have a twenty dollar whiskey, then how you go to market, how do you present yourself, and how do you connect with that customer and tear their spending dollar away from all of the other ones that they can that they can have. I mean, to build success, you can't do it on price because that's going to be a race to the bottom. You can't necessarily start out of the gate saying, all right, well, we're going to make bourbon that's better than anybody else's. That's going to get you laughed out of the state of Kentucky pretty quickly, <laughs> right? So it's sort of finding the, that other X factor in your brand. For Smooth Ambler's connecting to the bourbon, diehard bourbon aficionado community is really what got us going originally. I'm an enormous supporter of craft whiskey. I try to give them as much, you know, taste them as much as I possibly can and talk about them as much as I can. But when I sit down with distributors and I talk to them about why don't you push this more? Like I hear so much from them because the craft brands don't put someone on the market. I'm like, well, no kidding. They don't put anyone on the market. They have two people working for them. And then the next thing is they will say that a lot of craft distillers come at them like a charity cause, like, please carry us. Like there is, and I've seen this before. I've seen smaller distillers kind of take this, oh, poor me approach to try and get people to buy their product. And that strategy does work. It has that kind of like small business appeal. Have you seen that kind of approach of like, we're small, you shouldn't be supporting the big guys. And by the way, we make our whiskey. Have you seen that style work with distributors? Do they care about that? Or does it even matter? In my experience, they don't give a shit about that. <laughs> <laughs> they just want something that sells that they can order take. And neither do the customers. I mean, I've seen a thousand of those people. And Speaking to distributors, just what you said, you have to understand that we're good people who make good spirit from great local ingredients, and we're just a bunch of hardworking, good folks. It's just white noise at this point. Those people are hearing that story from every supplier, wine, beer. I mean, one little point of difference isn't enough anymore. You know, it's like, oh, we're the only ones to make whiskey out of this grain. All right, well, maybe there's a reason in 400 years of whiskey making, nobody used that grain before, you know, like, or we age in a barrel that nobody's aged in before. Okay, cool. It better be really fucking exceptional if that's the only thing, because you being a group of good guys making good stuff and working hard and wearing Carhartts every day, out in the distillery is not enough because the distributor management 
and their entire sales team are hearing that literally from almost every, some version of that from every single supplier in their house. So I haven't seen the, all oh, shucks, you know, we're the little guy, you should, you know, you should be buying from us. It doesn't work and nobody cares anyway, right? I mean, you got to have, you got to have something else. And that's kind of what, not to go down this path, but I was on another panel one time when it was accelerated maturation versus old school, just waiting on it. One of the things I said was, you know, if you're going to buy this whiskey that's had this crazy process and claims to taste like 10-year-old whiskey in six months, again, you better have your story straight when you're going to sell that for 40 bucks. Because one way of looking at it is that you've embraced this thing that allows you to go to market faster and all these kinds of things and your commitment to innovation and technology. The other way to say that is that you've literally taken every shortcut you could possibly find and... I don't know that that's a good sales story. And a distributor looks at all of that. I think, you know, they look at what can they talk about? What fills a hole in their portfolio? What do they think will motivate their people? But at the end of the day, Ryan's right. I mean, what they want is to be UPS for liquor. They just want to sell it profitably and easily. Fred, these are all, you've asked some amazing questions as we've been going through here. And I kind of want to focus on one thing here because you had mentioned people in the market. So for anybody that's a listener, doesn't understand, most brands, when you enter a market, you enter Texas or Kentucky or Indiana or whatever it is, you usually dedicate a salesperson that will be there that goes around, hits liquor stores, goes and does what are called ride with with distributors to go and get new accounts. They're doing tastings at stores. And this is something that you, you hire as a salesperson. And as Fred had said, that that's a very, very hard thing to do. And most distributors are not going to be your buddy that's going to build up your brand. It's on you to do it yourself. So to kind of look at that and say, all right, I'm a medium sized whatever, whoever we're trying to be. Johnny, when you're doing this, like, how do you guide people to say, like, you should go with a small distributor, somebody that doesn't have a lot of whiskey in their portfolio, or it's very craft focused? Or do you say, well, listen, things have changed. Sazerac's gone from Republic and they've got a whole slew of an army of people that will get you on premise and off premise. By the way, for anybody that doesn't know on and off, that basically means whether you're in stores or on bars and restaurants and stuff like that. So how do you try and say, this is where you start vetting the process to figure out which is going to be right for me, either in a certain market or state, or whether you try to go a few states at once with distributors that have multiple territories? Well, I always tell people, and this is so simple, but it's so valuable too. When I mean, when you're just starting out or you're established, but you're going into a market you know nothing about, retailers are a tremendous resource. I mean, I found some of my best distributors by just sitting down with a retailer and saying, if you were me, who would you use? Who do you think would take care of our brand? Who do you see often? And almost with 100% success, the people that they recommend have worked out for the brand. And then once you get a little bit more established, distributors know other distributors. You know, they very often all go to WSWA together or they run in the same circles. And so a distributor will also tell you somebody good if they're not in multiple states. We're in 15 markets with one distributor. It's Winebow. And, you know, I have roots there and trust those people. And a lot of people are still there from back in the Smooth Ambler days before we sold to Pernod. And that makes me feel really good to not have to start over in so many of those markets. But we changed distributors three times in a market in the last three years because 
We were with a big company. We mercifully got out of that agreement, went with somebody who was recommended to us. That didn't work out. And so now we're starting fresh with somebody new. So it's kind of a constant whack-a-mole. And when this market's going great and you've motivated this distributor and they're doing exactly what you want them to do, then you've got a problem area over here that you've got to go fix. And as far as the staffing thing, I know there's a lot of ways to do it. Some people hire their own or hire. I know High West was was really successful hiring their regional sort of spirits directors, but of course they had the budget to do that. You know, as Fred points out, that's a very expensive proposition and it's a very labor intensive proposition because somebody has to manage all of those people. You can also hire independent brokers and pay them a commission, but then again, depending on what they're selling and what how you fit in their book of people that they represent, are you really getting the attention? I've always found that it's better to spend that money in market or with the distributor through promotional efforts than it is, in my humble opinion, I've had greater success spending that budget directly in the market or with the distributor than trying to hire either a direct rep to work for the company or pay a broker. So, John, you brought up something very important that I wanted to discuss and that is you're saying it's better to spend money with that distributor. How is that money spent? Is this where we see the big displays in liquor stores? Via the brand, the distributors are paying for those large displays and call outs in, in liquor stores. How is that money spent by the distributors when you give it to them? Well, I don't really give it to the distributor. I spend it at the distributor level through promotions and incentives and programs. Like we're doing a grill you guys know I'm a bit of a grill fanatic and certainly around the grill is you know where the whiskey gets poured and the jokes get told and the stories get get relayed right so it just feels natural at Ragged Branch for us to to do that set the stage because a lot of people that are listening to this have no idea what programming or incentives or promotions they have no idea what that means so you can't just hand a distributor $50,000 to go sell your your product i mean you can <laughs> <laughs> it ha I ain't saying it doesn't happen. The other thing that people probably don't realize as well is like, let's say you sell a distributor 400 cases of your product, they're just not going to go out and sell it either. When it's derby season, the city of Louisville comes alive and happening on Thursday, April 11th is the Republic Bank Kentucky Derby Festival's Bourbonville. This is the third straight year Bourbonville will take place at the Fraser History Museum. Enjoy signature drinks, bourbon-inspired cuisine, access to museum exhibits, and tons of other bourbon vendors such as Elijah Craig, Fourgate, Four Roses, Kentucky Peerless, Pursuit Spirits, Castle and & Key, and so many more. General admission is only $75, and that includes all your food, drinks, and museum admission. Go ahead, buy tickets now at kdf.org for Bourbonville. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon. The farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, 
Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. The other thing that people probably don't realize as well is like, let's say you sell a distributor 400 cases of your product, they're just not going to go out and sell it either. Right. So I think that's also one of the things to set the stage is like they'll let it rot in a warehouse unless you put something together like what you're going to talk about. Yeah. So there are ways to incentivize their sales team and no brand can promote their brand all of the time. Unless you're a super big brand, you can do it. But like in a little brand, they can't run a special or a sales incentive on Ragged Branch every month for you know twelve months. They can't do it and wouldn't want to do it. You know they got to have time for somebody else. So once you partner with a distributor, particularly one of of any size, they're going to have sort of a promotional calendar that they can fit you into. And so whether it's a promotion where you say to the sales reps, hey, the top three people that sell the most Ragged Branch in the next 90 days win you know, a little money and a grill, and you fund that as a supplier. So you're not giving money directly to the distributor. You're not giving money you know, you're not handing out gift cards at the sales meeting to sales reps, but you're incentivizing the brand and promoting it. And everybody does some form of that. Sometimes it's just a dollar amount per case that's incentivized to go out and do it. You know, people are motivated differently. Some people are motivated strictly by money and some people are motivated by experiences and by getting stuff. And the distributors are supposed to know their people and they'll a lot of times tell you what they think has worked in the past. So when you take those promotional monies, as I said, rather than, you know, say if it's you're gonna spend twenty five thousand dollars in Florida, first of all, you can't hire anybody for twenty five grand. You could maybe spend that as ten percent commissions going to a broker that you might hire to represent the brand down there, or you can give away the $25,000 worth of grills to the entire sales force in Florida and see if that gets them motivated. So that's what I mean by spending those monies. Now, when it comes to end caps, and I think what you were talking about is what the big boys call last three feet, those big displays and things like that. That is when you become a volume player, and that's all funded by the supplier as well. So the distributor doesn't see that money, but the hope is that by spending those big dollars and making those displays available to the distributor, they're highly incentivized to go. It's just a tool in their toolbox, supposedly, that they can now go out to their retailers and gain a little market share. It makes you look professional to them. It makes them look like they have their shit together in the marketplace because, hey, we've partnered with this small brand and they may be small, but look, this cool display that they had made. Well, there's many facets to it, but 
inside of the distributor relationship, just supplier to distributor is super important and maintaining. The mantra that I've always had in my head is to be successful with a distributor, you have to figure out how to either be financially important or strategically important to the distributor. And most people can't start out being financially important. So you've got to you got to make them look good. You got to be cool. Their reps got to love you, whatever it takes for them to get just a little bit of your head above water. And then you can start to build on that. Just curious, financially, what would it cost to get one of those large displays in a region for a major chain? Well, the supplier is going to discount it as a case volume deal, right? So if you have one of those, like Woodford Reserve every year at the Kentucky Derby, they, I mean, they... Brown Foreman just spends a lot of money on that, you know, promoting that around the country. I'm just curious, like as a supplier, if you are trying to get one of those large in cap looks that you got a poster of somebody or a cardboard cutout or a football frame or a baseball frame, whatever, they all look different. They all, a lot of them look cool. What would that cost the supplier to put that in the store? I'm talking like advertising, whatever you call it, marketing money to the liquor store, whatever. What would that cost? I did that. We did several versions of that at Smooth Ambler. I mean, depending on a lot of factors, I would plan on at a minimum like $500 at a minimum, probably more like a thousand per location. And, you know, the big boys can do that, right? Because you might look at that and say, well, okay, so they're, they're in the red until they've sold enough spirit with this thing to generate a thousand dollars in profit. But Again, it's part of its marketing. Part of it has nothing to do with selling bottle by bottle. Some of it is the footprint and everybody going, holy shit, I can't believe Woodford's got this amazing or whatever the brand is. So I've never had a clear picture on what the ROI is on all of that. I bet big guys and small guys alike, we all pull our hair out. I bet Beam couldn't tell you the exact ROI of some of those initiatives. Well, I got. I actually have a report on that, John, that I got from Moonshine and in cap displays and displays in stores increase sell through rates by 25 to 30% is what they typically do from this marketing data from the spirits business. And so that's why, too, you, you also have the have the retailer agree to purchase all those cases from you. You can't just say, hey, I'm gonna put this 20 stack display in your your store. Yeah, because they can't return those, right? Well, because they have to buy them and sell them. And so a, you have to price them correctly to where you're losing money and you have to do the display. And so, yeah, it's like a sunk cost at first to hopefully build up brand recognition so that they look for you on the shelf and not on the ends. Yeah. And I guess that's what I'm saying is that expense is partially to move product and partially to just create a higher awareness and a greater visibility for the brand in general, because people take those brands seriously. When you see a mountain of it sitting in somebody's store, it's like, oh, these guys must have their act together somewhere to have created this. Yeah, it just makes you visible in the sea of bourbon on the shelf. And so it's, if you can have the dollars, they're probably worth it. I got a question about like, how much do you tell folks or do you all budget, you know, say you're going to do 500 cases in Florida. Is there a dollar amount per case that you're saying we need to spend on promotions and incentives towards the distributor or a percentage of the gross sales? 
How do you tackle that? It's kind of a sliding scale because it depends on the market. I mean, you're going to spend more in Florida than you are in here in West Virginia, for example, right? So it kind of depends on the market, how big it is, how crucial it is. The top five markets for spirits in the US are New York, Florida, Texas, California, and Illinois. And they have to do with population density and disposable income and wealth, right? So it doesn't matter whether you make bourbon or you make absinthe, you're going to want to be in those five markets. So you're going to spend more per case in those markets than you would Rhode Island, or as I said, here in West Virginia, or it might just be a market that's near and dear to you and you want to have a footprint there. Like it's your home market. It's always good to do good in your home market. And so maybe you spend, you know, spend more in Virginia than another brand would because it's sort of my hometown and I want to rule the roost as much as I can over there. In general, I would say that at a minimum, I think you got to have probably 10 or 15% of your FOB in play as a marketing expense, either through running quantity discounts with your distributor in states where that's allowed or expect to pay those in promotional money to the staff to run a sales promo with their, it's just a ballpark, but it's kind of different for everybody. And it depends on how deep your pockets are too. You know, we've seen some of these brands come out swinging because they're highly capitalized and they you know, they've put a lot of money aside to do that. And also, as I said, starting out, it depends on what your end game is. How fast do you want to grow and why? Are you growing because you want to have a fun little regional brand? Or are you growing because you want to sell it to a big guy? I mean, Paul at Fuse, one of the smartest guys I know in the business, I would hate for him to hear me say that because his, his ego needs no boosting. But no, I love Paul. And Paul, you know, that's a question that Paul posits to a lot of people is, as a supplier, who's your customer? Is your customer a civilian that's going to fall in love with your brand and drink it for the next 30 years and tell everybody how cool it is? Or is your customer Diageo that you want to sell to them in 10 years? Because it's two very different paths. It's two very different strategies. And frankly, it's two very different budgets. Well, I'm kind of curious about that. So why would it? I assume that you would need to find the people that will latch onto your product and talk about it and help build it. And that's what attracts the Diageos to come knocking on your door. What attracts the Diageos to come knocking on your door is sales volume. I mean, I'm not picking on Diageo, but any of those big companies. I'm not sure at that level, they really care about the story or the... <laughs> In my experience, they will tell you that they love the agility of your brand and all this kind of stuff. And then they will strip all of that away as quickly as they possibly can because they're, well, you're right. They're not trying to be assholes. It's just, they have this system and they want your business. They want your case sales. And they also want to take you off the board, but they also want to plug you into this system where everything else is working this way. And it's hard. And I guess starting out, if you know your goal is to move into that, then from a selling point, you would want to make, you would want to systemize as much as you can to work in concert with that when they come along. Because when somebody comes along and they want to throw some bucks at you and buy you, if you could also say, hey, not only are we selling 50,000 cases a year, but have a strong following and all this kind of stuff. And oh, by the way, it's easy breezy. Here are all of our contracts that are written pretty much like you would expect them to be, all these kinds of things. And I've seen it happen where that's not the case, right? Because you you have handshake contracts with farmers. Fortune 500 companies don't like that kind of stuff, right? So they immediately begin to change those and convert 
those into these big company thinking. I guess if you started out knowing that that was the goal line, that you would be more regimented in those kinds of things. And that would make you more attractive to a big buyer like that. Another point to that is that those large companies, they don't like it when you have a lot of independent distributor relationships. Like if you are in 25 states and you have 25 different distributors in those 25 states, companies don't like that. They like, an, like, like kind of like you're saying, like a good contractual, clean contractual relationship. So if you are, if your end game is to sell to Diageo or someone like that, your paperwork, the cleaner it is, the happier your customer will be because those lawyers, they, uh, they tie up time and hours. You're absolutely right. I mean, if you're, my advice is if somebody starts straight up starting out knowing, hey, we're going to build this brand and we're going to position it to sell out, you might as well start with the big distributors. They're going to make you crazy for the first several years as far as probably your sales volume, unless you've got a lot of marketing dollars to put behind it. But you might as well start with them because, again, trying to look attractive to a potential buyer later when you're already in one of those two people or three people, that's going to be a selling point. That's gonna, they're going to check that box in favor of buying you out. Yeah, that's been one of the things that we've always struggled with as trying to figure this out, because as a small startup brand, you'd be thinking, well, I don't want to go with a Southern or an R&DC because I'm just going to get lost in the shuffle. And so you choose a, a smaller, medium-sized distributor that isn't necessarily has a, a whole portfolio of a Jim Beam behind them or something like that, but they can dedicate their sales resources to focusing on smaller niche players. And that's always been kind of my concern going into it is like, yeah, like we're never going to turn down the phone call if, you know, a constellation or somebody wants to call us, but we still have to focus on the sales today. And I would always feel that, and not to say it, I'm not bashing RNDC or Southern or anything like that, always having to have the conversation. It's just one of those things that as we've been learning in this industry, we've been told like that will probably happen unless you have, as Johnny, as you said, unless you've got a bunch of marketing dollars to, to really back it up and incentivize those salespeople to get out there and do it for you. I got a question. So you talked about the dollars and incentives and how you kind of have to get in with a distributor. You more have to focus on relationship building and whatnot. We found that to be true. But how do you guys and how do you tell folks to like focus on getting product to move off the shelf? So like what have you all found successful or what do you because the distributor might be on board, get you out there in the market, but then you got to get pulled through. And so how do you I guess how do you all attack that? Because you're a new brand and no offense, nobody ever heard of Pursuit Spirits or Ragged Branch. So why the hell would they buy you? That's exactly right. I think that for our strategy and our growth trajectory, you know, getting on the shelf in the key spots is first. Because there's no sense, you know, other than if you don't do that, then it's like you're fishing in a non-stocked pond, right? You're doing all these cool things on Facebook or whatever your guerrilla marketing is that's allowable through your budget, but you're still throwing your brand at people who have no other than buying online, have no real opportunity to walk into a brick and mortar store and buy it. So you got to fill those shelves first. And then what I try and do is I like doing event-based things and experiential things in the marketplace, whether they be, you know, I just did like a big cookout last month in Louisville. And basically it was just like, I tried to make it as much like being over in my house as possible, you know, a bunch of barbecue laid out and the tunes on and whiskey out and making drinks. And again, unless you have a huge budget and you're going to pay to sponsor stuff or 
hire somebody in the marketplace and give them a teeny budget where they can go out once a week, like an on-premise rep would for one of the big guys and just do bar spends, put a bunch of promotional dollars. It depends, again, it depends on the price point because you're not getting a $50 whiskey in a cocktail at most bars. Different depending on where you are, different New York, different Florida, different certain places in Louisville. But for the most part, something that expensive, you're not going to get a menu feature anyway. So it really is about just getting the brand in front of people who, again, at our level, what always has worked is you ever get into a band before they get really big and you're like the only fucking person on earth that knows that band? Isn't that the coolest thing? So I would like to replicate that as much as, as possible as a small brand that people feel that way. And then you just kind of build out from there. I can tell you my budget is way smaller now than it was in my last year, but it was a multi-million dollar budget and we barely moved the needle. It takes a lot of money. So if it doesn't move the needle, why do it? Why not just invest in a new still or something like that? You know, make the, <laughs> get better barrels. I don't know. I just, I hear this all the time from marketers, and it's it's like so frustrating to me because they complain like, no, digital's not working, magazines don't work, billboards don't work. Why the fuck do you do anything? And I think this is part of my frustration with sales and marketing, and it always is, is that on this show, we've had this debate over the years, what's more important, the master distiller or the director of sales or marketing, whoever that person is. And I wanted to be the master distiller but I know who gets the budgets in these companies. And it's just the companies don't respect master distillers. In fact, they're pushing master distillers to be more marketing heads than anything these days. But if nothing works, why do anything? You know? I mean, first of all, you're, you're right. I think at that level, it's all the cool kids are doing it. And it's expected of you once you're plugged into that big system for you to try and play those games. And I mean, you know, we did big national sales meetings. We built a 12-foot elephant that's a replica of the cover of the label of contradiction and put it in the middle of the room. We bought ads on the front page of USA Today. And it's not like the next day sales went up by 40%. I mean, it's crazy, right? It was a half million dollar spend. Is that when you all were campaigning to be the best craft brand or craft tour or something like that? I think that's right. Yeah. Either that or was the best. No, it wasn't the best bourbon. That was, we didn't have that budget then. Yeah. It was like the best bourbon is no longer coming from Kentucky something or like something that. like yeah. that as well. I know that was a, I know that was. Man, I, I just know the best way to create a legion of fans and consumers is to get them to taste it. That's it. You can't convert someone on a digital spin. You can't convert them on a newspaper ad. At some point, they have to taste it or they have to listen or watch someone or read about someone who tasted it or friends tasted it. That's how you do it. And watching people try to reinvent the wheel over my career has been laughable in some ways. So you're exactly right, Fred, but it's painfully slow <laughs> to build a brain that way. I hear you saying that, Ryan, but I mean, you all are puppies in this. Like you're saying it's slow. I mean... I hear people talk about like, man, they're everywhere. I mean, people talk about you all everywhere, all the time. You guys are moving at a lightning speed, if you ask me, in comparison to, and no offense, John, but in comparison to like Ragged Branch, which they don't start coming on my radar until the last year or two. And how long has Ragged Branch been in business? Eight years. 
So, I mean, there you go. You know, y'all's approach to it has been lightning speed in comparison to a lot of other distillers. And Ragged Branch has been, I mean, I've known who they are, but they don't start getting into those conversations of who's making what where until the last, I'd say, two or three years. I might have had well, something to do with that. the compliment, Fred. But. <laughs> well, thank you, Fred. <laughs> John. As we all say, like, it always looks good from the outside, but every day on the inside just feels like a house of cards that's going to fall over. You got to remember, what's number one on your list is always going to be 101 on everybody else's list, right? Like, that's one of the things about this business that makes you crazy is you're like, how could the distributor do this? Or how could this retailer not bring us in or whatever? And it's like, you just have to get comfortable with the fact that your priorities are so misaligned with everybody else's most of the time. You have to create a thick skin and a level of patience to kind of deal with those disappointments. But as you said, Ryan, I think, and this is part of that being strategically important to a distributor is... If you're a good partner for them and you're profitable when they do sell you and you run a promotion with them or do something to capture some kind of share of mind with their people and spend a little time in the marketplace, there's this sort of sea change and you can kind of feel it inside the distributor when they start to get you and you start to get them and they know. It's almost like dating in a way. Like You have to establish that they know that you're not a jackass, that you're going to be there for them, that they're going to get the support when they do bother. I mean, it's suicide to try and create a relationship with a distributor. They ask you for something and you're like, no, I can't do that. I mean, I was with a distributor a couple of weeks ago, a rep, and they were talking about another brand who refused to participate in something, whatever, because it was $500 and they weren't going to do it. I'm like, you shouldn't have to approach it this way. But if the gods of sales smile on you and a distributor actually goes out and sells your shit, and then they ask for a little help and you say no, that's the wrong approach. Because <laughs> you want to have, you know, even at a volume, if it's only a thousand cases a year, what are they selling? That thousand doesn't get to two or three or four or five if they don't have a good relationship with you. I taught this class once and a, a guy came up to me afterwards and he was talking about they'd gone with one of the big guys. He was the distiller and the sales guy. And, you know, he had a bunch of uh, young trust fund investors and they were sick of the attention or lack of attention they were getting from this distributor. And they're like, we have a meeting with them in six weeks and we're going to sit them down and straighten them out and tell them to stop messing around with these big brands and start focusing on us. And I was just like, I was like, man, I wish I could come to that meeting. <laughs> and, and, uh, and the guy and the guy said, I felt like such a dick after this. He said, really? He said, you think you could help? I said, oh, I can't help, but I want to see the look on your faces when they tell you to go fuck yourselves. <laughs> 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. You're gonna you're gonna sit down with a twenty billion dollar company and tell them the way it is. Sure, you are. <laughs> Good luck. And it depends on the trust fund size, I suppose. Yeah, I guess. I guess. But anyway, I think someone gave me good advice just recently. Is like if you just go into the relationship not expecting them to build the brand for you, that will make the relationship so much better that you got to go build it and then they will get it on shelves. And that's the way to approach it. You can't rely on them. No, to build but it. once you, but once reps start to see when they're looking at their commission report every month and they start to see a pursuit spirits or ragged branch blip on there, then it becomes real. And then you start to have something to, to really build on. I mean, again, you're never going to be the number one thing. You know, whoever you if you're with a wine house that has some small spirits, man, they're paying their bills with rose and prosecco and red wine. And the other thing that 
you got to be comfortable with, I think, is I always figure this is just dumb sales guy math, but I always kind of expect that out of a sales force, 20% of the people in the distributor will never know I exist. 20% will latch on to the brand because they love selling stuff that's different, or maybe they just love selling spirits or bourbon, or maybe they're a former bartender inside of a wine house and spirits just easier for them. And then you've got 60% that are on the fence. I mean, you're going to get the guy who's paying his mortgage with Rosé and Chardonnay. You're going to get him to sell it a little bit. But the more you can do to make them look good and for them to make it easy to sell your brand, I mean, it's all just dumb block and tackle bullshit. But it's, again, unless you got the big dollars to spend and you really have to get out in the trenches and duke it out, which is what I'm doing now, that's the kind of relationships you've got to build. And you're right. You can't do it electronically and you don't do it by having somebody's delivery truck logoed with your brand. You do it by spending time in the marketplace. And you're right. Word of mouth is the best advertising. It is also the slowest. So you have to have this marriage between what you can physically handle and your budget can handle and also what makes sense for the brand. Yeah, as Fred said, I'm going to wrap it up, but I do have two questions that I want to do that's kind of pertinent to this conversation, especially while we get some free consulting at the same exact time. So the other thing I I also think about is as you're entering a market, there's also this decision of whether you go with chains versus independence and where do you put your focus in those particular markets? Kind of talk about your strategy there as well. Yeah, definitely. My strategy has always been to go into the boutique non-chains first. Again, depends on what you make and what your price point is. And you know, if you're going to make and sell a $15 bottle of vodka, then you probably don't want to do that. You want to go to the chains, right? But for something expensive and, and higher quality, yeah, I mean, my, my strategy has always been to go to the little guys, go to the boutiques first and get in there. They're the ones that are going to buy barrels. They're the ones that are going to hand sell your product. And a lot of times in certain markets, if you go to the chains first, that's not that the little guys won't pick you up, but they might be a little bit more reluctant if they know you're in total or some other big store, you know, a block away selling for less than they might. So strategically, I would always recommend for a small brand to go into the the independence first. But you don't have a choice in that matter, right? You can't be dictating to the distributor where they sell. No, you can talk about different focuses, but no, if you go into Florida and your distributor puts you in all the ABCs, then great. But you're going to want to talk about with them what the kind of goal is and what the strategy and the focus is. But no, you're you're exactly right. I mean, they sell you where they where they sell you, but you can talk about, as applies to any promotional monies you may spend with them, you may talk about where that money is best spent to accomplish that goal, whether it's chains or whether it's the local guys. Gotcha. Last question, I'll throw it out there because I'm sure there's other startup brands that listen to this show and they kind of want to understand it as well as you said at the very beginning, we're now starting to see a lot of distributors require contracts up front. And these are three, five, sometimes even 10-year contracts that says you can't leave us, you can't do anything about it. A, I guess your opinion on it, but B, or what are some of those gotchas or what are those things that you need to put in as a supplier side to make sure that you're protected from this as well? Well, I understand in the defense of the distributor, I understand why they do that because so many of them have gotten screwed by, they do pick up a small brand and they they allow that brand some share inside the distributor and they get it going and it starts to be successful. And then that brand sells out to somebody else and they just lose it. I mean, it happened at Smooth Ambler. We were with all these independent 
distributors and then we got bought out and almost all of them were just gone in a day, right? So I understand, and it hurts as a supplier and as a sales guy, because I'm a dance with the one who brung you kind of guy. But I also understand that it's it's just part of the business too. And so does the distributor as much as it's unfortunate for them to have it happen on their end. That said, as sympathetic as I am to that, I also think it's crazy to be locked into somebody forever where there's no divorce allowed. There are franchise markets in the U.S. where that's state law that once you choose a distributor, you're pretty much with them forever. And you, you know, as you grow your brand and go into those markets, you just have to learn to deal with that. That's a whole other topic if you guys aren't in uh, franchise markets with, uh, with your stuff yet. But I've seen distributors in open markets where that's not a requirement, not a state law, essentially ask for the same thing, that the contracts renew every five years in perpetuity, essentially at the distributor's discretion. And there really is no way out of it because if you give them a goal that they're not hitting or they're, I mean, they're not going to not pay their bills, which would be one way you could get out of it. If they're not hitting their goals, almost everyone I've seen says that there's a 90 day cure period. So they're going to figure out how to fix that or have conversations with you about it. The pitfalls are, I would not get into a situation I couldn't get out of. Now, that might mean that it's a limited time. I think you got to give a distributor three years before you know what kind of partner you've got. I don't think you can go with somebody for six months or one year and they're not setting the world on fire. And so they're a piece of shit. And you go find somebody else. I think you got to expect to spend three years in a distributor before you really know if you've got something or not. So you want to maintain some method of exiting that relationship and also one that isn't too fiscally painful. I mean, there's buyouts. We had one that was three times the previous 12 months gross profit at the distributor. So basically, you're leaving a distributor, but you're making them whole on three years of ghost sales on your way out. And that can be, depending on your volume, a pretty big number, right? I think leaving a distributor without a serious cause, there should be a penalty for that. I understand from the distributor side that if they've gone out and really tried to build your brand and, and get it out there, that they deserve something for you leaving. They deserve some kind of divorce settlement. But three years sounds like a lot to me. So you just have to negotiate all those. And all those things are negotiable. I mean, you know, I've every contract that's currently in place with us, I've negotiated at some point with the distributor's team. So don't feel like when somebody just puts a piece of paper in front of you, it's, you know, sign it or or leave it. They're not going to tell you that they'll be happy to talk about it with you. They just want you to sign the damn thing and be down the road. But you can say, hey, let's have a discussion about these parameters. Good job. I love it. And like I said, this is something that's been a therapy session, I think, for me. But I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that are in the same shoes that are startup small brands that are trying to navigate this landscape and trying to do that. So, Johnny, I want to say thank you so much again for coming on the show and giving an opportunity to kind of get an insight into sales and distribution, because even if you're not a startup brand, if you're just a consumer out there and now you get to understand that there is this whole other world of building a bourbon brand or just building something in the booze business that you typically don't see as the consumer. So this is something that's been, I think, very insightful. So I want to say thank you again for coming back on. Thanks for having me. And really quickly to your point, I agree with you. I think the the average civilian has no idea what it actually takes to get that bottle on the shelf at their local store. And, you know, sometimes they're like, I don't know why this guy doesn't carry this. Well, he might not carry it because his distributor 
has so much competitive product to that that they, they don't want to bring it in and it's not available for you. Like, you know, as a civilian, you think, well, why the hell doesn't don't they have this? But there's so many can be so many things that have to click in place for that to to occur. It's a crazy but very important part of our business for sure. But fellas, thanks for for having me. It's really sincerely great to see you guys again. I hope to see y'all soon in in Kentucky. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yes. I need to know about the next cookout. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. We'd love to have you guys. Well, give one more plug for Ragged Branch and or for yourself, however people can find out or learn more about. I mean, Ragged Branch coming soon to a bar shelf near you, handmade liquor out of Virginia. Here we go. Easy enough. The original Kentucky. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> That's right. Oh, Here we go. Boy. Here we go. <laughs> no, Here uh, we go. Yeah, thanks. Got it. Got it. And it was, yeah, you know, anybody like it's you know, my email is John at Ragged Branch. I mean, anybody listening to this that, that wants to bounce some ideas off me, if I can help anybody, I, I certainly will. It's funny in the industry, right? The distillers, the guys that are making it and gals are making it all seem to get along and all the sales guys are a little bit more prickly, but I'll, I'll do anything I can to, to help somebody. God knows I had lots of help on the way. And some of the things that we've talked about today that I think I know, I know because I was paying attention to what somebody else told me. So feel free to reach out. I'll, I'll be happy to help. And for you guys too, if you go, if you're going into some new markets and you're not sure who to go to or whatever, just pick up the phone, man. I'll do everything I can to help. That's always been one of our pieces of advice that people go, well, how do I choose a distributor? How do I do whatever? You got to talk to people. You just can't go and blindly, you have to look at their portfolio and find people you know and either talk to them and see what their experience is like. Or as you had said earlier, Johnny, just you got to talk to liquor stores and see exactly is there a consensus of ones that work well in the particular portfolio that you're trying to push as well. And in all fairness, just because a distributor sucks for one supplier doesn't necessarily mean they will for somebody else. I mean, you might just have lightning in a bottle. You might have a relationship inside that distributor. They, whatever reason, they might just latch on to your brand. I mean, it's sort of like we all know somebody who's been like, oh, man, don't date Debbie, man. Debbie's, Debbie's crazy. You know, well, maybe she's the right kind of crazy for you. Like, you never, you know, it's, so who knows? There's so many different factors. It's nuts, but it's a fun, it's a fun business. Yeah. Well, thank you for sticking with us. I know this has actually been one of our longer episodes we've done, but again, it was therapy. It's just so much to learn, especially for people that out there just don't know anything. So thank you again for all the information you shared. So make sure you go follow Ragged Branch, go check out some of their bottles too, but make sure you also follow Bourbon Pursuit, share it with a friend, the podcast. You can buy a bottle of our Pursuit United and share that with a friend too, but also make sure you share the podcast with a friend, leave a review, talk about it, whatever it is, and also follow our good buddy, Fred Minnick over here as well. But with that, cheers, everybody. We'll see you next week. Take care. Bucket six. Toodles.